we have um, two papers here today. Um, the Canadian National EMS Research Agenda, Impact and Feasibility of Implementation of Previously Generated Recommendations, and we're really fortunate to have one of the uh, authors of this paper, and um, Ryan Brown is here joining us. So welcome, Ryan, and thank you so much for joining us on this one. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And then the, the second paper we'll address later is the pre-hospital use of magnesium sulfate as neuroprotection in acute stroke, uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. And I promise you there is a link between these two. Um, so we'll start with the Canadian uh, National EMS Research Agenda. Um, I'll give a summary of the um, research and then ask Ryan to jump in and correct me if I've uh, made any uh, errors or um, and I have a couple of questions too for you as we go. Um, so this is a, um, as it says in the title, it's, a, it's an impact study. So an, it's studying, the, let's go to the background actually first. We have um, research agendas. We're all familiar with the United States uh, publication in 2001 of our national EMS research agenda. Uh, other countries have also published research agenda, um, Ireland, Australia, and now Canada. And the research agendas, of course, provide sort of a charge, right? Um, a strategic direction or a, um, a roadmap, as you said in the, in the paper, to improve um, the amount of EMS research and the quality of EMS research and really look at what we do uh, with a, a critical eye. So uh, from this study, it says that the research agenda was, was uh, developed out of a mixed method study, which um, I know we have some paramedic students online, a mixed method study would be something that combines qualitative and quantitative research. And I think that background study had survey data and interview data um, to combine to come up with the research agenda that generated 19 actionable recommendations. And what this study does is it looks at what is the state of this? Uh, what, what's happened since the research agenda, the 19 recommendations were uh, published, um, which I think is really important. And there's actually a statement in the background that I think was important that, you know, even though we've published our, uh, our eight recommendations in 2001 in the United States Research Agenda, um, outcomes of those recommendations really haven't been reported. Um, and so this is to address that kind of a thing. So um, this study was a, a cross-sectional electronic online survey of EMS research stakeholders in Canada. And those stakeholders included um, EMS managers and regulators, researchers, physicians, educators, and then a few EMS providers. Uh, the actual survey was sent out. It was a Likert scale, and it looked to evaluate or asked the, um, the participants to explore the uh, impact and feasibility of each of the 19 recommendations. And by uh, impact, there w it was you know whether or not they felt it would make um, a big difference, whether it would make somewhat of a difference or not make a difference at all, and then feasibility having to do with whether it's possible to do uh, without too much effort or resources, uh, whether it needs some effort or resources, or whether they can um, have what, what we have what we need and we can do it without any additional resources. So that was the, the, the two sort of measures. And the um, Responses were then analyzed um, descriptively, but also using um, a quantitative measure, median, and then plotted onto this matrix, which I want to point out um, in figure one, which is on 
page 486, and I was I was actually confirming this with Ryan earlier. If you're looking at this figure, the impact um, axis and feasibility, those are switched. So if you can um, switch those, the impact should actually be um, on uh, the vertical axis and uh, feasibility on the horizontal. So those were, that was actually an error in uh, the uh, editing of the paper. So and, and that's important. It took me a few read-throughs to figure out that that was actually a, an error in the printing. So uh, these responses were analyzed, put on this matrix, and then um, there was also a free text area where uh, the uh, participants were asked um, what kind of resources would be required uh, if there were resources and then, or whether they anticipated any resources to be required. And then also if there were any planned initiatives or ongoing initiatives with any of these um, recommendations. So as I said, the participants, uh, actually I was really impressed with the response rate. They had 71% or almost 72% response rate and that was after, um, I believe it said a, a few emails sent so sometimes when we survey, it's email followed by phone call, followed by you know snail mail or some other type of method, but a few emails. So uh, I would imagine that, that this is an important subject to the people that were, um, the participants that were selected. So I would say this was purposeful sampling, and I believe that's said, stated in the results. And then snowball sampling, meaning that you have, um, with each respondent, you might have, um, you know, during an, an interview phase especially, or during the, the um, uh, free text phase, maybe there was something that said, um, you know, you should actually talk to so-and-so too. You should really uh, interview so-and-so or, or send a, a survey to so-and-so because they are the chief of whatever or, or also involved in the study or interested in the outcomes. Um, so the, the results were that the for the most part, uh, participants scored, and, and I don't think this was probably unanticipated, but they uh, they scored impact higher than feasibility. So in other words, uh, for the most part, for these recommendations, we had um, things that we, we, yes, they'll make a big difference, but we really can't do them unless we have a few more resources. And this was also uh, outlined in um, the if you look at the impact and feasibility table, um, eight of the recommendations had median impacts of five and medium feasibilities of three, which means that they felt recommendations, again, would make a big difference and they could be accomplished, but that they need effort, some additional effort or resources. Uh, and these ones were uh, strengthening research partnerships, uh, increasing funding opportunities, um, creating um, opportunities for AMS providers to work in research positions, um, integrating uh, budgeting for research projects, um, improving research literacy, ensuring evidence-based decision-making and linking with hospitals and other data sets. So those are the eight um, uh, recommendations that kind of bubbled to the top of being uh, uh, important and having incredible impact but also needing to have some type of uh, resource support. Can I do have a question. Can I yeah. jump in for just a second? First of all, congratulations to Ryan Brown, who's on the on the uh, call with us, and I really appreciate him joining us. And for those that don't know, uh, just because I jumped in, Dave Page, I'm uh, uh, director of uh, the Prehospital Care Research Forum at UCLA, um, and I, I just want to congratulate the group because of uh, a job well done in sort of looking at what are the uh, what, what's the intersection of the 
uh, effort and yield and impact. And while we may not be able to do the entire list, they took a minute to say, are there some quick wins, or maybe not easy wins, but uh, things that we, we could implement that would make a difference in moving the agenda forward? And that means that you know people are, are forward-thinking, people are trying to not just have this be a, a dead document, but rather a living, breathing, let's see what we can do. And, and I just want to highlight the two that really struck me, uh, the strengthening of the research partnerships and, with academic centers and national associations, uh, because we have an opportunity to do that worldwide, I think is, is part of the message. We need, to, we need to stick together as EMS professionals all over the world. And, um, and uh, national associations, I think, have a, a, a duty and a responsibility to move some of this agenda forward and fund some of these efforts if they can. The strategic marketing of the importance of research falls back onto even uh, the instructors and the advocates we have for research as part of the PCRF, but also all over EMS. So I will just ask that people like Keith Minoski, who have uh, joined us with his entire paramedic class, uh, you know, that's that's the way that we're going to make sure that. Uh, EMS providers from day one understand uh, the importance of research and are proliferating that message. I just got back from the Australian Research Forum at the Paramedics Australasia Conference in Adelaide, and this was very much an issue. This was, this paper was discussed there, and uh, you know we're, we're talking about um, hundreds of abstracts being submitted to that conference, and uh, by not only practitioners who, who, by the way, in many cases receive time off from their ambulance service in order to, to, to perform the research and then present it, but also the, um, the paramedic students in Australia who are uh, submitting research to that forum. Uh, I think this is just brilliant and it's, it's really a good opportunity and this, this paper helps move us forward in that direction. So just I wanted to add that comment about the, the way in which this was done, the snowball sampling, uh, inviting 131 people and then getting a 71.8% return rate. That's just, it's just well done, so thank you. Do you think, Dave, that some of that is preaching to the choir? I mean, we are asking people that we think we probably could anticipate the answer. Um, interesting that the recommendation that you mentioned, um, which was strengthening research partnerships, was the one with the most ongoing initiatives. So that's um, yeah, I agree. it was the one that had the highest uh, degree. And so I'm I'm just curious too when I was reading this whether or not this was um, you know we're, we're sampling people. I, I have a question here, and actually maybe Ryan you can address this. What, um, one of the questions I have, the, just sort of from the very beginning when you're designing a study is, what is it that you, what's the hypothesis? What is it you expected to see? Is this any different? Did you expect people to say, you know, yes, it's, it's, this should really impact, you know, the system and, you know, I don't really need any resources, just my dedicated soul will do it. Um, on our end of things, we, we had some uh, themes we thought would rise to the top. Um, but really, uh, we were, and a few of these mirror fairly closely the Australian and the, the U.S. agendas. Um, but really, when we started, it was we were kind of thinking blank slate. Um, let's just put this out there. And obviously, this document comes directly from the uh, the mixed method study itself. So um, we we had some of the uh, higher priority things like uh, 
closer uh, infrastructure with academic centers. Um, obviously, money is always an issue in funding. Uh, we, we pretty much expected those, um, but uh, really we tried to kind of keep an open mind and, uh, and go into it with a blank slate and see what rose to the top. But uh, I do uh, somewhat agree with the, the, the preaching to the choir um, as far as who we included in this, especially with the purposeful sampling. Um, but we did get some people that, uh, that were not uh, entirely uh, familiar with the research enterprise, some of the more managerial people and um, some of our services where it was a national agenda. Uh, where research was less of a priority. So we had pretty good pan-Canadian uh, representation uh, of people that uh, responded to the Delphi and to the initial uh, NRA itself. Um, so uh, we definitely were preaching to the choir, but uh, the people that are, are stakeholders in this tend to seem to have the same, uh, the same goals. So that's really who we needed to reach uh, as it was anyway. Sure, and it may be that they are the ones to who are going to be the decision makers or who have the knowledge base to begin with. Others may not actually have that. Interesting, too, I have a question about the, um, the recommendation with the least ongoing or established initiatives reported was number 16, highlight EMS research in special issues or sections of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. That seems like a slam dunk, so I'm, I'm curious why that one didn't have ongoing initiatives. Had that already been done or what's the barrier there, do you think? Um, I think the barrier there was um, just the editorial staff focusing more on emergency medicine itself, and this absolutely was a slam dunk. Um, immediately after this implementation uh, study was when we got our initial results, um, we started talking with the CGEM people, and uh, we've had uh, we had an issue itself that was uh, dedicated to EMS research, and now ongoing there is a there is a certain section that is EMS research itself. And for those of you that don't know, CGEM would be uh, analogous to, I guess, Annals of Emergency Medicine or Academic Emergency Medicine in the, in the States for the Canadian audience. Great. I think Thanks it's interesting. Yeah, um, uh, it's interesting to think of one of the barriers being dissemination. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so I'm curious just to ask, uh, and for those not familiar with this particular problem, it isn't just, uh, um, it, uh, there, aren't, there aren't enough barriers in front of a researcher uh, like, uh, you know, complicated uh, IRBs or, or data collection or actually getting returns of surveys or writing the actual paper. But once you get done with this entire process, it's very possible that a journal will decide not to publish your work. And so, um, in just in the interest of encouraging people to publish, um, I wonder if Ryan, you might just say a few words about how it, you came to get this uh, submitted and accepted at the Canadian uh, Journal of Emergency Medicine. Was this the first journal you submitted this to? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, and we specifically targeted it as that was one of our uh, one of our strategic knowledge translation initiatives was to uh, was to work more closely with them and their editorial board to get uh, to get EMS uh, papers in the literature in that particular journal. So yeah, it was the first one that we, or the only one that we submitted to actually. So you had, uh, just for those budding researchers that are listening to us, a, a, a very premeditated uh, sort of methodical approach to this by contacting this journal ahead of time and saying, we, we want to put this together. Is this something you'd be interested in, in publishing? Um, not not this specific paper. No, we we went through the process just like any other submission. Um, but we had been in talks almost immediately after this because we had an implementation uh, session with some stakeholders uh, after the survey, 
And uh, we, this was something that we had, uh, and again, we were preaching to the choir, so a lot of the people that were present at this implementation session were involved with the journal, and actually their, their editor at the time, Michelle Wellsford, uh, is an EMS physician out of Hamilton. She was there, and she was uh, quite supportive of this. So for the this actual paper itself, no, we went through the normal channels, but we, uh, we really uh, impressed upon uh, the editorial board and others there that uh, we thought that there was a need in Canada to have a, a form for EMS research. Excellent, thank you. Um, but there's a comment from Paul Masasi in the audience about saying the, uh, the the chance of publication after you've written the paper is one in five. So um, and this is not for the faint of heart. If you've, you've, uh, and I think it's a it's a journal that carries uh, an impact factor, and so it it had, carries prestige. And getting EMS research into the mainstream of some of these uh, emergency medicine journals or or just in general JAMA or other medical journals uh, is a challenge and um, so it, it takes uh, quite a bit of tenacity and uh, perseverance and maybe that's one of the the things that your your paper actually tells us is that we need more avenues for um, initial researchers or for new researchers to be able to publish without the um, impact factor rigor or uh, the, the, the difficulty in the selection process that some of the the more prestigious journals have. Would you say that that's true? Sure, and I think that ties directly to one of the other recommendations was an avenue for these researchers, these EMS people, to gain post-secondary education. Um, because that's really key if you're going to publish in any high-quality journals. Um, and uh, we do have a number, a few pockets, centers of excellence here in Canada, um, two or three well-established research programs uh, in the EMS field, but uh, it's not something that's, that's widespread. So I think the key is really getting the researchers trained and trained in high-quality programs. Yeah, and I think I'd like to add that um, the word paramedic too, or or EMS um, personnel in the in those uh, that group of researchers, because I think uh, sometimes what we see are increasing fellowship programs for EMS physicians, um, which I think is fantastic. But it's it, we need some people from the field as well, um, and, and increasing numbers of programs there. And you know, with this, <clears throat> the whole concept of a research agenda. It, it raises the question, you know, we develop these planning documents and um, at the time that the Canadian research agenda was developed, was there already a plan in place to measure, um, like the study does, the implementation of the recommendations? Was there already something um, within the document that said, you know, in five years we're going to do this, in two years we're going to look at this? Uh, the plan was that this be a living document. We didn't know exactly how uh, we would carry that out, and one of the recommendations, uh, I think it's recommendation 19 actually, is that this is an ongoing document that uh, we keep working on. So after um, after the initial study, uh, we went forward uh, with stage two, and this was stage two, and it's definitely something that will be ongoing. And the idea now, and, and David touched on it, that it would be a living document, and we do need to measure the outcomes and see what's being done. So. We've looked at uh, what we think the impact factor would be and what we think would be feasible and look at, okay, and we haven't really decided our time frame, but in two to 
five years or well, what has actually changed, what impact has this document had as a whole. And we've also really put it out there. Um, another big win was uh, we put together uh, the Canadian EMS uh, Research Network, or CERN. So we now have a pan-Canadian organization um, that directly stemmed from the initial document. Um, so we have people lobbying in uh, numerous areas throughout Canada to, uh, to put some of these things into action. And one of the real points of this implementation document, and we had an implementation session afterwards, was, okay, now we've done this, we've looked at our national landscape, take this back to your own backyard and see what's applicable in your context and try to implement what you think you need in your individual service or province or, or what have you. And we did, um, for the, uh, the Atlantic provinces on the eastern seaboard of Canada, we did a similar session uh, for implementation and we haven't published on it yet, but uh, it was interesting because the uh, impact and feasibility uh, really spread across the map, whereas in the national one, it was really in that pocket of a median of three to five and four. Um, but it was quite different for our specific context, and uh, I would imagine it would be the same across Canada, but that's really, that's really the point of it is now let's take it to our own areas and use it in our own context. I, I love yeah, what you're great. saying. Yeah, um, I want to I want to bring in some of the comments that are coming in off of uh, uh, people who are watching this and and commenting um, from uh, uh, Bill Toon, who's a a PhD paramedic uh, in now living in Virginia. Um, he says it's a shame that there are not closer relationships between academic emergency medicine programs and regional EMS providers, and and we need to prompt closer collaboration. And the PCRF might might need to establish formal relationships between NAMSP, SAEM, and other organizations that could have an impact. Uh, again, looking for uh, EMS-driven EMS, -driven EMS uh, clinicians to participate in research and understand evidence-based medicine. And then uh, Paul Masasi, uh, who I know has been trying to get a, a, a great paper published on uh, human factors, uh, who, he's doing a PhD in that, uh, have has been. Um, having difficulty and and he's wondering out loud if, if having an MD behind your name actually moves some of these articles uh, uh, more easily through the process and um, it's a you know that's a very good question if um, if we can't um, get academic credibility even when we have paramedic credentials that include academic credentials then um, you know, is there some bias towards having particular types of authors? Uh, but not to focus that on that too much. The uh, Bill actually is asking another question here. Can can our Canadian speaker comment on the plan to move all paramedic training in Canada to a four-year uh, degree for paramedics? Uh, obviously, then being able to include some elements of research. Um, do you know much about that, Ryan? Uh, there, there is a national will um, to to move towards a degree program, um, and there is a great deal of work being done in a few centers. Um, there's a, uh, if not a true paramedic degree program, but there's um, an associate program, uh, Bachelor of Sciences and or Bachelor of Health Sciences out of the University of Toronto. Um, there's also um, some work being done on Prince Edward Island, one of our other provinces. Um, as well as uh, work being done here in my home province of Nova Scotia. Um, but it is absolutely necessary in order to build a career ladder, uh, specifically a research career ladder. You need to have 
that undergrad baccalaureate uh, credential in order to move further on into uh, into the graduate realm, uh, obviously. So there is definitely national will. There's a, a lot of work to be done, but there are a few centers that are, are working pretty hard on it right now. I'm familiar with one project in Ontario where Ontario partnered with Charles Sturt University in um, Australia to actually uh, collaborate and assist working paramedics in finishing their their bachelors and was uh, really successful. Uh, uh, Graham Monroe is now actually living with, and so is Joe Acker, uh, they're, li they're Canadians living in, in Australia that are paramedics that, that really took uh, uh, took it to the academic level and, and began um, uh, organizing and doing more research. So there, there has been some effort, I think, previously. I know Monash University uh, is interested in in helping folks as well. So there is a there, the way in which the UK introduced those four-year degrees uh, was through the Australians, and, and maybe that's uh, a cue for us to take from both the UK and Australia. Definitely, definitely. There's a uh, there's a lot of models out there, and there's a lot of successful models. And um, I, I, our our national organization uh, is definitely looking at it hard and we've put out a, uh, a recommendation I think by 2020 that this be the case um, but there is a lot of work to be done and uh, we definitely have the will by for the, the frontline paramedics as well it's not something being driven top up it's really something being driven from the bottom to be able to get involved in more of these uh, advanced roles whether it be education academia or, or clinical. Keith Minaski is making a comment here currently there are approximately 30 bachelor degrees in the US that are related to EMS. So, um, I, I would be remiss before leaving this topic, Megan, um, uh, I think we have to say that the Prehospital Care Research Forum, the PCRF, has a four-hour introductory course that is free uh, that paramedic instructors could assign their students or people can just simply uh, go and check out. If you go to pcrfpodcasts.org, um, Research 101 is a project that uh, was generously funded through our relationship with uh, FISDAP, one of our sponsors, and uh, that it remains a free course that can be assigned as a as either homework or, or something that somebody can go through to learn more about research. Great. I'll also That's put great. a plug in for our, our system. We have something uh, similar through Dalhousie University, Division of EMS. We have the pre-hospital evidence-based practice course, which uh, is available online. So uh, I'll definitely check out uh, the, uh, the course that you guys have um, and see, uh, see if we're thinking along the same lines as far as things go on the evidence-based medicine side of things. Yep, the, the URL for that I'll put in the chat. It's bizdap.net slash research 101. And let's put in the URL for the Dalhousie um, link as well. This is the first time I've heard of it, and that's wonderful. Yeah, just sure. send it my way, Ryan. I'll, I'll put it in the chat. Okay, will do. Yeah, I think the more we can integrate research literacy, and I like that word, research literacy, and, and discussions of practice um, from an evidence basis, it, rather than just um, handling it as just a standalone, um, you know, just during that introductory chapter or whatever, and then leaving it from there, it should really be integrated into all aspects of our education um, discussions of the evidence basis for things that that are, you know, uh, on the horizon or in our practice or the lack thereof. 
Megan, this is Kiri. Um, I just wanted, um, I am the region's EMS fellow, so from the standpoint of um, kind of learning more about how medical direction goes and as an EMS physician, I think that, you know, being a, a physician saying these things can only really go so far, maybe being an EMS manager can only go so far, and I completely agree with all the points being kind of from the bottom up and really getting it integrated into the, you know, primary providers and their education and really I think that's the way that this is going to get disseminated and get more um, more results. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, the two winners of the Australian Research Forum, both of them paramedics with uh, Ambulance Victoria in, in Melbourne, both of them have one shift off that their ambulance service uh, just gives them a day off so that they can work on their PhD. It's that um, the support is that, uh, uh, the commitment is there, and it's that serious. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> A call to arms, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Should we move on to the second paper, or do you have other yeah. items with this? I think it actually fits because um, we talk a lot about systems of care, and Ryan and I were discussing on the phone earlier that um, with the increasing emphasis on on systems of care, I think it's it's uh, the research itself may begin in the EMS setting, but it's really, uh, like this next uh, study, it's more about a system of care. So we can call it EMS research, um, but in, in terms of this uh, pre-hospital use of magnesium sulfate uh, as neuroprotection in acute stroke, the FAST-MAG study, uh, this was really a system of care uh, that began in the pre-hospital setting. So uh, there were a number of uh, important things, I think, about this. And the reason why I really liked this one, for a couple of, couple of reasons why I really liked this paper, is uh, number one, it's extremely well written. Um, and it's easy. I think it's a good one to present to students or for students to discuss in a journal club fashion, because it is a randomized clinical trial, a blinded um, controlled trial uh, that was done, that was initiated in the pre-hospital setting. It has a number of issues that relate to pre-hospital um, research and the difficulties with pre-hospital research and, there, and some of the barriers that, that are at least um, that we've been dealing with for many years. Uh, and I think it also creates a model for future studies. So this one, and if you, uh, are we ready for just a general overview and then I can let other people come in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we should transition to it, uh, and and um, I I'm uh, just humbled by the fact, that, Megan. We have on the podcast they're being silent right now, but but both um, Dr. Stewart and Dr. Stewart and Dr. Larman are logged into this podcast. Both of them are foundational mentors who have uh, been pushing for research in EMS and teaching people how to do it, uh, you know, for decades and decades. And, and so uh, I just wanted to make sure we give a nod to them as we, as we yeah. transition into a more of a clinical uh, paper that um, we've gotten so much out of uh, both of them. And, and here they are still tuned in, even though they're, they're playing fly on the wall and don't want to make a comment. <laughs> yeah, in the in the 90s, um, when uh, Dr. Larman came and presented demystifying pre-hospital research in San Francisco, that was the very beginning of my uh, involvement in research. So 
um, a very important person in, in my um, involvement in pre-hospital research. And of course, Dr. Stewart. Yeah. Um, so moving to the, uh, the study, this is the background of it. I think um, most people know there's so we've reviewed several stroke studies uh, now already in the, in the podcast. So we know that it's the it, worldwide, it's the second leading cause of death and the leading cause of adult disability. Um, so we know that it's important in terms of trying to get uh, a handle on, on treating acute ischemic stroke in particular um, because there's uh, reperfusion-based treatments. And now, in 2015, a lot of the evidence after a, you know, a dozen years of research or so worldwide about endovascular um, therapies, mechanical embolus removal, removal and other things um, that involve comprehensive stroke centers, um, this is all showing some um, benefit to certain subsets of patients. So. Uh, this is becoming a really important area, and I remember in the 90s the discussions of neuroprotection, and neuroprotection was really thought to be the next thing on the horizon, that uh, the idea was to protect the brain from the cytotoxic cascade of uh, cell death, and uh, then reperfuse and protect again. So that was the whole idea was to get neuroprotection on really early, and the advantage of neuroprotection is you don't need a CT scan because uh, theoretically it could assist hemorrhage, uh, hemorrhagic and ischemic strokes, any sort of damage to the brain. The idea was to get the substance, whatever it would be, to the cells that are spreading this uh, cascade, uh, this chemical event that is pretty well uh, known and interrupting that cellular and metabolic process that, that um, spreads that cerebral tissue injury. Um, so, and it actually even occurs after afterwards too. It keeps going, so it's it's a really important thing, uh, neuroprotection. But I also remember a number of trials, and in this uh, paper they talk about 70 neuroprotective agents have been studied. I remember several of them going on uh, in the 90s. So we really have not been able to tap into that neuroprotection, uh, and I guess you could say therapeutic hypothermia is uh, kind of in there as one of them. But one of the the things that has interfered with all of these studies has been delayed time to treatment. So this study was actually looking not just at looking at a specific agent, which is magnesium sulfate, and magnesium sulfate is a membrane stabilizer, so it's thought to disrupt and actually um, demonstrated in animal studies and a few human studies to potentially disrupt this cellular cytotoxic cascade and, and stabilize the membranes. Um, it's not just about the, the um, the studying the substance, but also enrolling the patients in a pre-hospital study uh, early and trying to get these agents during the what they call the hyper-acute phase of stroke. So um, it also uh, really important. Um, they describe magnesium as inexpensive, widely available, and simple to administer with a favorable favorable safety profile. So that's definitely when we see something like that, we think EMS because of our setting, we know that this would actually be a, a good choice for EMS. So what they did was, um, this was a over, I think, an eight-year period that it ran, a total of 315 paramedic-staffed ambulances in Southern California and 60 receiving hospital sites. So it was multi-center, randomized, double-blind, and placebo-controlled. Um, the hypothesis was that the initiation of this neuroprotective agent magnesium sulfate uh, in the field would improve long-term functional outcome of patients with acute stroke. 
And functional outcome is measured in a number of ways. The primary outcome they used was the modified Rankin. Um, with, these are widely accepted, validated scales that are used. Secondary outcome was another number of different types of functional outcomes, like um, the NIH stroke scale sc score. So that's the kind of severity of the neurologic injury. Um, and the Glasgow outcome score and, and the number of activities of daily living. Um, so really getting at that adult disability that we know is um, really problematic, of course, in stroke. So this was um, patients that were 40 to 95 years of age eligible for inclusion if they had a suspected stroke. And the, the way they determine the suspected stroke was using a, the Los Angeles modified um, pre-hospital stroke screen. So it was modified because I know that LA pre-hospital stroke, stroke screen, I thought it was 45 years old, so there was a modification of it. Incidentally, there are three um, methodology papers published in stroke that supplement this paper. Um, so they published them separately so you could actually look at some of the details that are not included in the overall paper. So the treatment um, inclusion and exclusion criteria um, are, are one of the things that are, are published in the supplement, but they use the modified LA pre-hospital stroke scale. Now that, that can be a little bit problematic um, because you could say that this makes sure that, you know, this is a motor deficit stroke scale, so you're actually excluding you know, uh, the pure sensory or the cerebellar or posterior vessel strokes where there's visual disturbances or, or balance disturbances or something like that. But um, this is actually pretty, uh, uh, this was validated I think in another paper as well that they catch a, a really uh, large proportion of these strokes. Here's the interesting part I think is that um, they performed written informed consent on the scene uh, and, and that's a big deal in pre-hospital research. So you have a choice. You can um, you know, present to your institutional review boards, um, your human research boards, uh, ethics boards, that you would like an exemption from informed consent um, and you have to prove that the patient could not otherwise, or, or family members, a legally authorized representative could not otherwise consent because of the condition um, and that the patient is in or the family members are in. Um, or, as they did here, they said, you know, we actually think we can do this, so we, they designed a consent protocol where the scene paramedics could call in to the physician. The physician would actually, during care, so they didn't interrupt care, but during care, discuss the, the protocol with the family member or the patient and performed informed consent. And if they couldn't, then they would were able to use the exemption from informed consent. And interestingly, 99% were able to be consented either through the patient or through a legally authorized representative. Only 1% were, was, the, was the exemption used. So that, that's really um, amazing. So I think that's something to be looked at in terms of future studies. So um, what they found out though in the end was that the, prim so the primary outcome being the degree of disability uh, three months after stroke and then other outcomes we said were level, you know, levels of neurologic deficit functional outcome and activities of daily living. And essentially the ambulance, what you were doing is once you enrolled the patient after calling in and consenting, um, the paramedics would administer a 15 minute bolus infusion of uh, four grams of magnesium sulfate and then they carried the hospital dosage and brought into the hospital the dosage to be continued for 24 hours. So I thought that was interesting too and that was um, attributed to a, a real reduction in time 
uh, in terms of treatment. So they did have to adjust sample size at one point because they had a higher proportion of enrolled patients with intracerebral hemorrhage than projected, which um, I guess they made their projections from general population statistics of stroke. Uh, and really in the EMS setting, we would probably be more likely to see the intracerebral hemorrhages, subarachnoid hemorrhages, the um, meningeal hemorrhages because of the dramatic presentation. They tend to have headaches and seizures and altered mental status that's, you know, sudden onset. Um, so they actually had a higher percentage of that. And because um, their early studies had, had, they had thought that maybe there wouldn't be as positive effect with the hemorrhagic strokes, they wanted to enroll more patients. So they adjusted and enrolled up to 1,700. Uh, total. It was really evenly distributed. When you look at the uh, placebo versus, I'm sorry, the control was the was a placebo. When you look at placebo versus magnesium sulfate and you look at all of the baseline characteristics, it was really right down the middle. They were very even in terms of uh, how they were split up. Um, and also included in this was uh, the, the time, so symptom, anything that could, could be attributed to, you know, the outcome you look at and all of the times, initiation of 911 to study administration, paramedic on scene to study administration, um, showed, uh, number one, very little delay in terms of participating in a study. Um, and number two, very even spread between placebo and magnesium sulfate. So it looks like it was really meticulously um, controlled. Now, uh, the outcome, though, was no difference. No significant shift in distributions of disability outcomes, no differences in the secondary outcomes. And I think the, um, and the overall 90-day rate of death also, 15.5% um, in the uh, overall. So, and no real difference between groups. So I think the mistake that can be made in looking at this study is to say, well, there was no difference. Another study with no difference and shelf it. Um, and I think there are some really critical pieces in this study. Uh, one is that and they do highlight this. They say that they had a system aim of delivering study agent to patients with stroke faster than in any of the other previous phase three trials. And they were able to get treatment within the first 60 minutes after the onset of stroke, sometimes within 30 minutes. So um, that was one of the things. The other thing I would say is they were enrolling patients through this combination of um, training and telemedicine with a physician and consenting patients creates a, a whole new model for uh, anyone out there thinking of doing research that thinks that this is a, a big barrier to research, the consent model. So I think that alone um, was a, a really important finding of the study. Dave, do you have anything um, to Megan, say Yeah, I, I want to jump in with a couple of things. First of all, um, Baxter, upon being poked a little bit on the on, on the air, uh, has sent some comments in and um, uh, greatly appreciated our plug. But also, is uh, has got some fascinating things to say here, especially in the context of our last conversation. This is a multi-million dollar, possibly even ten million dollar project that is amazing. It's the gold gold standard for research to do a, a double-blinded, randomized, controlled project that. Uh, Clearly, Dr. Saver and Starman had uh, consumed them for years, Baxter wrote, yeah. and that, uh, uh, though the initial piece here didn't find a difference, it's studies like these that are really complicated and, and may, you know, 
never be seen again uh, if, if uh, we don't really fund uh, these kinds of research trials well. So kudos to them is what uh, Baxter says and and for Keith Minoski who had to leave uh, his, his, his paramedic class is still tuned in. We're watching by the way, you can't leave. Um, but uh, but as, as he was leaving he's, he, he said he's wondering about the generalizability of this uh, uh, so external validity of the study because it was limited to hospital care in the LA area and because uh, so much of the care was in the hospital uh, could we are we really going to be able to say that is this true from you know all over the place so I'm curious to think to know what um, Dr. Haley and and Ryan Brown think about that Uh, I think uh, speaking to the Canadian, in the Canadian context, uh, that's definitely a concern because our healthcare varies uh, so broadly from site to site and uh, different capabilities of different areas. So uh, I do think that's uh, that's definitely a concern. Uh, it probably isn't overly generalizable, but it's a very well done study, and uh, the methodologies very straightforward. It is a really clear-cut uh, randomized control trial, so I think lessons can be learned from how it was conducted and that can be made uh, individual and tweaked strategically for uh, what people do have available to them depending on their area. I definitely agree with that point too. I mean, just within the where I'm practicing now in the Twin Cities metro area, there's different ways um, different hospital systems handle um, strokes, cardiac arrest, um, STEMIs, and STEMIs, all of those, the big kind of things. Um, but I think for me, the biggest thing that came out of the paper was really more that they were able to do this in the EMS setting and being able to kind of set that up as, you know, saying, hey, we can do this, maybe more money should be get be for EMS and research provided um, because this is something that can be pulled off, which I don't think, I mean, there hasn't been like another major study that I know of at least that really showed this kind of magnitude of ability to implement something so quickly in the pre-hospital setting. Dave, I think sometimes we miss the point um, too of, by, by calling it EMS research, we compartmentalize ourselves. And this is a good example of a system of care we're not. We're looking at an outcome of a st of stroke patients. We're not looking at can paramedics do. I never thought that was a good question, and I think it's it's not a good question. Um, can paramedics do? Uh, I think it's it's about the stroke patient, and if the and the, we know that the care needs to begin early. That we've known that for a long time, both clinically and um, biologically. So. Uh, what they were, and I think they highlight that point that even in some of the best of studies, we're talking about a two-hour difference in treatment um, between pre-hospital and in-hospital. So I think that, and again, they highlight this is cheap, it's safe, it's easy to give. Um, it, it doesn't. It's it's almost like you know questioning the value of Narcan. 
Um, it, it, it's not the setting in this case. It's really about the system of care. Can we pull together a system of care? And I think they do it really well with the telemedicine too, with having the physician come to the scene and help with the consent issue, which is such a difficult issue. I totally agree. I mean, it's it's stifled some of the uh, other research that's been done, uh, just in terms of being able to get cardiac arrest consent if the patient's unconscious and, and the validity of, of doing that. Uh, but I couldn't agree with you more in terms of um, having systems of care. Uh, recently, the AVOID trial, the uh, uh, preventing or not giving oxygen um, uh, to STEMI patients, uh, I had a very interesting approach to this particular issue just, just because so many in-hospital studies have uh, discounted the care that occurs before the patient arrives at the hospital and if the patient received oxygen before they even got there, then by default there's already other care that had been provided and it altered uh, it was a variable that they just didn't account for, and it, and it alters the way uh, the entire um, outcome might might, uh, might be, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word. So uh, I can see where even in other projects like cardiac arrest where we, we discovered that chest compressions actually mattered to survival, and now if we were to go back and redo all the studies we did on whatever it is, lidocaine or epinephrine or atropine, we might have different results because we now know that this one variable mattered. And yeah. I, I asked myself when I was listening to, or listening to you and, and reading this paper, just MAG um, may actually be effective uh, with, you know, with some other parameter that we're just not getting. Um, yeah. And that it's not a big enough difference here that it would tip the balance between use or not use because there's some other variable that's that's confounding it. Um, in um, uh, just to report, also uh, Paul Masasi made a nice comment about his uh, work at Sedgwick County EMS. They they spent quite a bit of time analyzing their strokes and um, their uh, the the split was uh, askew, acute ischemic strokes were 75% and uh, hemorrhages were 25% respectively and so he says they're coming out pretty uh, pretty even and then also just to keep keep the comments coming um, uh, Baxter Larman says this is not the first of its kind the first study of this kind um, there is uh, one done in the UK uh, the authors wanted to see if uh, done in a short on-scene time that might make a difference in, in long transport, the results would definitely be the same. So um, it's um, sooner uh, doesn't necessarily mean better and uh, Bill Toon agrees with the system of care. So um, it's, uh, it's definitely a great, uh, a great study. I agree, and I, I uh, love how Megan puts it. It's not EMS research. It's not just pre-hospital and then hospital. It's uh, definitely something that is a, a systems question and a system study, and um, I think that's something we need to embrace more uh, in EMS. I don't want to say EMS research because that's what I'm kind of arguing against, but uh, a systems uh, systems look at things, and we're doing something similar. It's not an RCT right now. 
uh, but we're doing a retrospective cohort. We've been doing thrombolysis pre-hospitally for nine years now, and now we're starting to take a look at following through them through the, the continuum of care and outcomes um, for for what we've done. So I think uh, I think that's a major switch we need to make is looking at things from a systems level and throughout the, the trajectory, whether it's pre-hospital or within the hospital. Cool. Well, we're we're close on time here. Do you have anything else? Um, I, I'll I'll just jump in and say that um, uh, it's really a pleasure to see people excited about research, talking about research on this podcast. That we really want you to submit um, your own research, and ch I'll challenge the group on the phone to do very simple projects, even that. Um, people could do in their classrooms. Uh, we we know that there are uh, very, very simple things. Dr. Burnett, who works with uh, Dr. Haley and uh, others in the area here, had suggested a very simple, simple project, a uh, simple project to measure the difference in uh, expired and tidal CO2 from uh, patients that are it's paramedic students who are simply sitting idle uh, getting their vital signs checked. Um, we, we've not yet done all the homework that we need to do to just simply uh, discuss and, 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 and study the, the tools that we're using. Um, the deadline for submission for the PCI uh, research uh, abstracts that will go uh, into EMS today, so that's where we disseminate our um, clinical research. The educational ones go to the National Association of EMS Educators, which is normally in August. But these um, these ones that will be at the end of February have a deadline of November. And uh, we would just highly encourage people to participate in this dialogue by, by simply um, doing some simple projects. And paramedic students and, and EMS students are, are highly encouraged to use this venue to, to dip their toes into research. I'll also um, take a quick moment to uh, get a plug in here. We have another deadline coming up, which is the deadline to apply for the 2016 FISDEP Research Summit. Um, talk about an opportunity to get in, involved in research. It's a great introduction. If you've never um, participated in an EMS research project, um, it's on February 5th and 6th of 2016. And applications will be accepted through the end of the month. Um, if you don't know what the Research Summit is, there's some information about it on the FISDEP website under the Research tab at the top of the, the website there. So um, check it out. Um, if you'd like a link to apply, uh, it's on our blog, or send me an email at nora at fisdep.net, and I'll, I'll send you the link to apply. All right, are, are we ready to wrap up here, guys? Any final thoughts? I just want to thank thanks oh. for including me. Uh, it was a great experience, and uh, it seems your group has uh, has an excellent program and uh, definitely an excellent journal club. You've uh, definitely gained a listener. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for involving me as well. It was really great to listen in, and probably have to listen in another time. It was a good discussion. Right. And Megan, thank you for facilitating today, too. Yeah, sure. See you next month. Thanks, everyone. Have a great afternoon.